You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. Welcome to Voluntary Vixens, where Jesse and Maddie give a female voice to news and pop culture with a libertarian twist. Join us to stay informed and challenged while keeping it sane, peaceful, and most importantly, voluntary. This is Jesse with Voluntary Vixens, and I am solo today because Maddie is on a business trip, so she isn't here. So I thought I would just do the show by myself, but we'll do probably a shorter one if I can control my myself and not be so verbose as I have been in the past. Today, I actually had originally planned on talking about the legalization or decriminalization of drugs and talk about addiction because I've had some experience with working with addicts in the past in my psych days. So that was what I was planning on talking about today and I will but then of course there's some other newsworthy things that have come up since this original plan was made so we're just going to kind of wing it today. So first off I guess we'll just talk about what the difference is between criminalization or decriminalization and legalization of drugs. And I guess this could go with, you know, what's been going on recently with the legalization of mushrooms in Colorado, and they've already legalized marijuana there too. So the Colorado is definitely well on its way to just getting rid of all of these uh, drug laws that we don't really need. So I thought I'd start by just talking about decriminalization first. So decriminalization it is basically the decriminalization, basically not, it's not the same thing as legalization, but we are taking away all of the, the laws against people who are caught with the, in the possession of drugs, especially marijuana meant for personal use. So if you're caught with the drug, nothing will be done to you. Basically, that means that if you are pulled over and you have a bag of weed with you, nothing will happen. But... It does not protect people who are manufacturing and uh, selling illegal drugs like marijuana. So that would still be illegal. So that would not necessarily protect you from selling weed out of your house or it necessarily wouldn't even really stop the drug cartels in Mexico or Honduras or uh, Colombia or the opium people who are are smuggling opium in from Afghanistan, that really wouldn't stop that. Um, But if you were caught with these drugs, necessarily, if, if, if all drugs were decriminalized, then nothing would happen to you, per se. Um, I know that they try this in Portugal. And what they try to do is if they caught somebody with heroin, for example, they would try to get them to go to rehab. I'm not really sure on the numbers of what, about how successful Portugal has been with their their instances of people dying from drug overdoses and that kind of thing. But I know for sure in my area, we have a big problem with people using heroin and or hillbilly heroin known as Oxycontin or any of the pain medication that people abuse. Oxycontin being probably one of the most commonly or morphine dilaudid. I was just thinking that I wanted to do decriminalization at first because I thought that would really 
that would be better than legalization. But I really didn't know this until today that as far as like manufacturing and selling the, the drug, you could still get in trouble for that. So there would still be, in my opinion, and in most people in the liberty movement's opinion, you would have people who are not necessarily committing violent crimes still going to prison. And you're still going to have the problem of drug smuggling across state lines or across nation lines. So that doesn't fix that problem. And we all know drug cartels, they're not care bears that just want to hug you and uh, give you your drugs. Uh, A lot of times these cartels are violent uh, rape and murder and, you know, all the fun stuff or all the unfun stuff, I would say is still going to be a problem if drug cartels continue to exist. So the next thing is legalization. So I do. Oh, before we go on to legalization, I wanted to talk about there's 13 states in the, in our, uh, that have decriminalized the use of marijuana. So I was just going to name them here, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Maryland, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New York, North Carolina, Ohio, and Rhode Island. All right, so now we're going to go on to legalization. Legalization is basically lifting of all the laws banning the possession of marijuana, or if we're going to go to all drugs, um, the banning of all drugs are going to be lifted. Um, and this is uh, allows the government, but this the downside to this is that it allows the government to regulate and tax the use and sales of these drugs. So that's my biggest problem. And this is the reason why I was a proponent of decriminalization because then it would keep the government from taxing it. But it seems like they could still put you in jail for a nonviolent crime. So I'm not sure what the better option is. So if the government can tax you for your, your drug sales and the use of the drug per se, like if you go to a cafe and you want to smoke some weed, you have to pay a, a taxes on that sale. Uh, then that government can basically take that money and just, you know, they use, they will use it about as wisely as they have been in the past, which is um, not wisely at all, unless you consider war and basically paying for unnecessary things that we don't, that we could probably just pay for out of pocket if we kept our, if we were able to keep our money. Like, I don't know, sending our kids to a nicer school than a public school. Then, yeah, legalization is still going to allow them to steal money from us. In other words, I think the big there's always going to be pros and cons. I mean, the big pro with legalization, obviously, is that if we legalize all drugs and not just marijuana, in my opinion, then we definitely are going to cut back on the drug cartels ability and power over uh, other people that they're revenue would go away pretty much overnight and they would have to find other things to other ways to make money and that could be prostitution that could just mean that they actually I don't know find a real job but that would be that would be just assuming too much that they want to do that but anything that's in my opinion that's going to take away power and money from the drug cartels is worth it to me. So in my opinion, even though we're going to be taxed, I think legalization out of the two is probably the best bet. Maybe on a state by state level, you can argue with your legislators about how much taxes they're going to 
take out or what that tax is going to go to. Some states, I think they, their marijuana taxes goes specifically towards like education or specifically towards other things that maybe that particular state really wants to focus on. Or it could even be community to community, like that could be the county gets a cut of that percentage and they use it towards their public school system or whatever. I guess I'm more in favor of legalization now that I've actually looked at this, although I'm not a huge fan of the um, taxes idea, but I think it's better than putting nonviolent people in prison. We already have enough people in prison and I think that if we can legalize drugs and maybe we can get some of these people that are in prison now who were, you know, they were basically just pulled over found a bag of weed on them or maybe found some meth on them or something like that, get them out of prison where they're not getting any help, maybe encourage them to go and get some rehab. And plus, when you take that felony charge off of them, they actually have a better shot at getting a good job and being able to start a better life. There's just a lot more positive to it because that's been a big problem, I think, is these people end up in prison for maybe their girlfriend left a bag of weed in their car and then they get pulled over and now they have a felony charge on them. They can't vote. They can't own a gun. So if they are live in a bad neighborhood, they can't even legally protect themselves. And then you also keep it where they have a hard time finding a good job. So if you have a felony charge on you, you're not necessarily going to be able to get that, you know, CEO job at the big tech company. You're probably going to be lucky to get a job at Wendy's. So let's, lift that away from people and open it up so that these people can have a better shot at life. I mean, that's a, if they want to continue down uh, that path of criminality, that's up to them. But at least we don't have the, they don't have the excuse of saying that the government got in their way and kept them from being able to be functioning members of society. All right. So then the next thing I was going to talk about too, in regards to, to drugs, legalization, decriminalization is I was going to talk about addiction because I was on Facebook a couple days ago and I follow Knoxville crime. And one of the, one of the things that was brought up multiple times, because we have a huge problem in the town I live in with people overdosing on opiates in their cars and they need to be revived. And it's just, you know, now our police office officers, they can Narcan people if they find them passed out and then they just call call ambulance on them. So it's been a big issue in our, in our town. I mean, I know for me, I've walked into Walmart with my daughter and I saw a man sitting on one of the benches at the very front of the store and he was basically laid over and I thought he was gone. And I'm holding my daughter's hand and I'm thinking to myself, I don't really want to expose my five-year-old to all of this, but I don't want to also be responsible if this man dies. So I go back and I check on him. Somebody else was also there. I ended up calling 911 and having them come out and see him because I just didn't know how much he had taken. The poor guy. And I, I mean, I say that because I really do feel like addicts don't come to that state on purpose. Nobody wants to be an addict. And if they could see the way that they look or they act, they would be ashamed of themselves too. So I kind of feel bad for them because they just don't realize like how bad it all looks. But 
he had like a wad of cash in his hand. I mean, anything could have happened to this guy. And unfortunately, the Walmart that we live next to is known for this. And there's a lot of homeless people that live nearby. They, they are in the shadows. We don't see them because they, they, they're off the, off the main roads. But I, there's camps of homeless people that live off the road in the foresty areas. So it's pretty sad. And of course, drugs are a main part of that. So one of the things that people say a lot in this forum that I follow is addiction is a choice. It's not a disease. And so I was just going to kind of rant about that because I think that is just a very small-minded and a very a very simplistic way of looking at addiction. And that's exactly why we have such a problem with addiction in this country because nobody is willing to take it seriously. Addiction is both a choice and a disease. The choice is where it starts. A person who chooses to take a drug is making the decision, I'm going to take this drug, knowing full well that whenever you take any substance, you might become addicted to it. And that is true, even if you're prescribed the medication or if you're doing it recreationally. I mean, that's just true, which is why as a nurse, I find a lot of times I have to talk people into taking pain medication sometimes because they are so fearful that just one dose of pain medicine is going to get them addicted. So it is a choice at that point. But what I have seen a lot of times is a lot of young men, especially, um, maybe they're not, they're not college track. They go into construction work, they go into a trade and they end up hurting their back. That's a very common one. A lot of young men hurt their backs because first off there nobody is really going over with them like how to ergonomically move things and lift things we learn that in nursing like before we can even be on the floor we have to be you know checked off on how to lift a patient do not you always use your knees to lift you never are lifting something and twisting at the same time that's how you pinch a nerve it's how you like damage your back but there's still sometimes you just can't avoid an injury. Some people are just, I think, they're smaller and they're more prone to that type of injury. For men in the construction field, they don't get that training. And so I think they end up making a lot of rookie mistakes. And I've seen a lot of young men. I mean, I'm talking like 20s, 30s that have already had back surgery. I had a patient when I was working in the hospital, 18 years old, hurt his back in football. That's another one too. This is just my two cents right here. But moms, dads, do not put your sons into football. Okay. I've just seen too much. I just think it's dumb. First off that they don't have enough padding and especially for their backs. That's a common injury. I see back and knee, knee and shoulder injuries. And the thing is, once you've hurt your back, like once you've had to have back surgery, you're basically stuck with having back pain all your life. There's just no way around it. So I'm thinking this poor 18-year-old boy who he was a football star when he was in high school, but he injured his back. So now he can't play college ball, which I'm sure he wanted to. And here he is having a laminectomy, which means they're basically removing a vertebrae and trying to something happened to one of the vertebrae. I can't remember what happened, but I mean, he's going to be having back problems all his life and he's only 18 years old. So football my son will never he can touch a football but he will never play full-on contact football sorry 
And I don't think he'll want to because we're a basketball family anyways. We like basketball. My husband likes baseball. So those two sports, I'm better. I'm better prepared for those injuries, I think, than football. Anything where you're just full on tackling people, it's just probably not a good idea. All right. That was my two cents on that. Back to the to addiction. So addiction, I think, is is a disease for sure. And more and there are people that are just genetically predispositioned, I think, for certain types of addiction. Some are going to have multiple different triggers. Like they might have a familial genetic predisposition towards alcoholism and tobacco and pain medication. And then you're going to have some that are just predisposition towards maybe tobacco, which I think that's, that's my family. We have a huge problem in our family with, with cigarettes. Like we can, I can never pick up a cigarette because once I do, I will crave it. Even though at the moment that I'm smoking a cigarette, it tastes awful and it sucks and I hate it. But once I pick that cigarette up, like a few hours later, I'm going to crave it. So I just try to stay away. But some people are going to be more prone towards alcoholism. And I also think that there are some, there definitely are some genetic differences between the races as well. That's why you see Native Americans struggle more with alcoholism because their bodies are just not designed to process alcohol sugars the way that maybe somebody like me who's Irish and Eastern European and German and I mean for generations and generations my people have been processing alcohol sugars like it's no tomorrow I mean so my body knows exactly what to do the moment that that alcohol touches my lips but a person of Native American ancestry their body just does not process alcohol the same way. And that's just true. That's not a race. That's not me trying to be racist. There have been multiple studies that have shown that uh, not just alcohol or illicit drugs, but when pharmaceutical companies have studied uh, drug effects, their drug effects on people, most of the people that volunteer to be tested are usually white males. So a lot of their data does not necessarily reflect like how a Chinese person would process that same medication or an African-American or a Middle Eastern man or a Middle Eastern woman for that matter. So what studies have shown over time is that a lot of times like what a normal dosage that would work on a white man or a white woman you might have to give a lower dose to a Native American or to a Middle Eastern or to a Chinese person. And the same thing goes with black people, too, or African-Americans. You ha- they might not need as high a dose. But I don't think that all doctors know this sometimes. And so they will give a medication to an African-American person, for example, and they may have a very adverse reaction and the same thing also goes with redheads. Redheads have different reactions to medications than others, too. They, they can't handle epidurals as well. They can't handle uh, pain medication as well, either. They might have more of a... They may not need as much pain medication as, as me, for example. My redheaded girls out there, you guys probably know what I'm talking about when I say that because you've experienced it. In fact, I have a really good friend who's a redhead and she has to be really careful about everything she takes because she, what it, 
what a medication will say that it's supposed to do may not necessarily even have that effect on her at all. So there's just some, there is some truth to that. There really are differences between the races when it comes to our genetics and what our bodies can process. So the whole mythos that we're all the same, we all should be treated the same is not true. You definitely do not want to treat a patient, an African-American patient, the same with the same medication dosage, the same strength and everything as you would maybe a white person. And if you're a good medical professional, you know this. Um, There's also cultural differences as well. Like a Chinese person is going to be a lot more stoic and quiet. You may not necessarily know that they're in pain. You may not necessarily know that they're uncomfortable. But if a a Hispanic person comes in and they're in pain, you're probably going to know about it because you're going to hear it down the hall. So there's a difference. And even amongst different white cultures, too. A Russian or a German is going to be a lot more quiet and stoic. But an Italian is going to let you know, like, way before you even walk through the door that they need their pain meds. So, yeah. I mean, I don't want to be mean, but that's been my experience. And, of course, there's always outliers. So don't, you know, automatically assume. You always have to step in when you're a nurse into a situation with an open mind and just read the, read the situation, read the room, you know, learn how to read your patient. This is a libertarian and voluntarist viewpoint. Every person is an individual. You have to treat them like an individual. But there is some truth to being able to see the, uh, I mean, just to be able to look at some of the groupings and you start to notice some patterns. There's nothing wrong with being able to recognize a pattern. So especially with addiction, my two cents is that it's like looking at a type 2 diabetic. The type 2 diabetic, if you know what a difference between a type 1 and type 2, type 1, they're born with diabetes from the very beginning. They will always have to check their sugars. And they're, they're usually a lot more brittle. And especially someone who was born with that, they're going to have, um, they've probably been in the hospital multiple times because their blood sugar either spiked or their blood sugar dropped all of a sudden. But a type 2 diabetic is different. And my family in particular, we're genetically prone to type 2 diabetes. That is somebody who over time, they just eat carbohydrates, sugar, alcohol, anything that's got anything that has a carbohydrate in it, they probably consume too much and their body becomes resistant to, sh- to insulin. So basically what that means is that or they become insulin resistant, which that basically means is that they're, the sugar that you're putting, the, just the god-awful amounts of sugar that you're putting in your body, your, your pancreas just stops responding to it and doesn't put out the insulin anymore. That's what it means by insulin resistant. It doesn't allow, it doesn't put out the, uh, enough insulin to bring the sugar levels back to a healthy level. And if you have too much sugar in your bloodstream, that can cause a ton of different problems it can cause, basically what it does is it may, it turns into an acid inside of the blood vessels and it can start to eat away at the blood vessels. It can create plaques inside the vessels because the, they're, try, they're being damaged and they're trying to re, um, to heal up over and over again. And it's really a problem in your, like in small blood vessels, like in your eyes and in your feet, it affects your circulation that's why you'll see a lot of older people with di- type 2 diabetes because of just over the years, they've just like just decimated themselves with sugar. So that's my that's some of my people in my family for sure. But 
they'll you'll see a lot of older folks that are going blind or they'll have neuropathy in their feet or hands, which means that they might have a numbness or they might get like a burning or a pain sensation in their feet that doesn't go away and they have to take something like Neurotin to kind of help deal with that that kind of pain. They also are more prone to infection because when there's sugar in your blood, bacteria just love sugar. So if you get a cut or you bust your toe, uh, all of a sudden this bacteria has all this sugar that it can just eat and it will just proliferate, proliferate, proliferate and will cause it can you can go septic or you could just deal with a ton of ulcers on your feet. Um, or I know of patients that have had to have their legs or their feet, toes removed because of neuropathy and just all the additional infections and basically they're, they just don't heal anymore. So to me and to everyone else, I would say type two diabetes is a disease, but it comes from making a decision to eat tons and tons of sugar. So that's my two, two cents. In short, basically I'm saying that addiction is a disease and it is and a choice. And if we don't treat it like a disease, then we're going to continue to see addiction becoming a problem in our communities. But if we start treating people medically for a disease and we we look at it from a two-pronged approach, then we might actually get some headway. And we also need to stop stigmatizing people who are who are addicted because they don't want to be addicted, okay? They say that sometimes because they if they don't get the drug, they're going to feel sick. So if you have the option between feeling sick and then being high, of course you're going to choose to be high. But the problem is they realize that they've lost family, friends, and connections. They don't can't hold a job. They might not have a relationship with their kids. I'm sure they don't want all that either. So you have to have a little bit of compassion for some of these people or else you're never going to get anywhere with them. And I understand that for some people who have like a family member that's an alcoholic or a drug addict, it's hard to watch them go through that. Um, as a family member, I can understand you needing to dissociate so that you can be healthy. I understand that point. I guess I'm more preaching to medical professionals and law enforcement, that kind of stuff. All right. So another thing is I, since I wasn't going to have Maddie on the show with me today, I asked some of my friends to get to, you know, send me some questions they might have. I guess I'll start with the one question that, that was asked of me that just kind of popped up that I didn't expect to be that much of a big deal, but it ended up being because um, of the news that happened today. Um, Zeke had asked me what my feelings were about what was happening in Alabama and um, what he's talking about is the abortion ban. So just real quick, I'm going to kind of go over that. The biggest thing that I've seen, the biggest lie that I've seen all over the internet, and it's been driving me crazy, is that this new abortion ban is going to, it's going to mean that women who are seeking abortions, they're going to be put in jail and for murder. And they're going to, even if they try to cross state lines, they will be prosecuted for murder and blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, it specifically says on page one of the Alabama bill. This bill would provide that a woman who receives an abortion will not be held criminally culpable or civilly liable for receiving the abortion. So there goes that. So if you see anyone else saying that to you, tell them to literally go read the bill. In fact, I read three bills. I read 
the Alabama bill, I read the Georgia bill, and I read the Ohio bill. And none of them say anything about putting a woman who is seeking out an abortion, putting them in jail. Now, if there's any other bills out there that say that, feel free to email us at voluntaryvixens at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on on Twitter at Vixens Voluntary if you need to. But I, I have yet to see it. And I'm sorry, I didn't read all the bills. I don't have that kind of time. I have a lot of free time because I work part time and my kids go to school, but I don't have all the time in the world to read bills all day long. So this is my thoughts, I guess, about or what the heartbeat bill says. It talks about that any woman who is seeking an abortion, she has to have a medical necessity for the abortion, meaning that the mother's life will be at risk if she continues on with her pregnancy or if the baby itself is medically fragile and will not li- not live past delivery. And the medical the me- medical necessity, they, were, they had a bunch of definitions like for what they meant by that. But what I'm thinking of, and, and it's very rare that you're going to have a medical necessity to have an abortion. But the only things I can think of right now, just from my experience, is that it's an ectopic pregnancy. And that means that the baby is implanted outside of the womb. And a lot of times they end up being implanted they implant themselves in the fallopian tubes, which if that pregnancy continues, it will burst the fallopian tube. The mother could bleed out and die. And of course, the baby's going to die along with that. And what they would do for that is they'll give you a um, abortifacient, usually methotrexate. They'll give that to you orally and it will go ahead and just it basically what methotrexate does is it stops any any cell that rapidly replicates itself, which is what a a baby is doing. It's constantly replicating cells as it's developing inside the womb. So it's going to stop that immediately. We usually like to find that out as soon as possible. So usually within the first six weeks is usually when they will, you know, try to take care of a ectopic pregnancy, sometimes a little bit later. But another thing I was thinking is that if a woman is diagnosed with cancer and she has to undergo chemotherapy, So maybe the doctor will say, you need to make a decision because if you don't go under the chemotherapy, then the cancer is going to spread to possibly even the fetus, or it's going to spread so fast it will kill you and the baby anyways. So maybe they'll say, if we go through the chemo now, we have a really good shot at saving you, and then we can try and conceive at a different time. That would be a very hard decision. I've never had to experience that. So our... I've never had to see that in a patient. I worked on an oncology floor and I never saw that. I have seen mothers who just gave birth to a child, found out she had breast cancer, and then immediately had to be put in the hospital, go under surgery and chemo and all that stuff. And so that sucked for her because she had no time to bond with the with her baby before she ended up having to have all these procedures done. I mean, one woman in particular, she was undergoing chemo and her white blood count was pretty low. So she had to stay in her room. And anytime we went in there, we had to wear a mask because we didn't want to possibly pass on germs to her. It was just her and her husband both. I don't, I don't, I think her husband needed to stay with her for his sanity. So I guess the baby was staying with the grandparents because the baby clearly could not be in the room with her. That is what I've seen. But the, basically what the Alabama bill is saying is that at six weeks is when the heartbeat of the child can be heard under ultrasound or under Doppler. And 
that at that point, if there's no medical necessity and um, the baby seems like it's healthy at that stage, then no abortion is allowed to be done. This is also in the cases of rape and incest. And so that's what has the leftists so upset is because they want to, they think that you should be able to uh, abort a child if it's a product of race or incest, rape or incest. That might be the most controversial part of the bill. What I was going to say is my opinion on that. My opinion on abortion has changed a lot because when I was younger, I thought that it's an it's a necessary evil. I wasn't in favor of it, but I thought we need to have it so that at least it can be done safely and for uh, you know for the cases of rape and incest. But now I'm a little bit older. I've done a lot more research. Rape and incest is about together, I think, about 1% of cases. I've actually saw a documentary about women who've been raped and got pregnant. It looks like most women choose to, to keep their baby when that happens to them. And they'll just give them up for adoption or they'll, or they'll just keep the baby. I think from a libertarian point of view, a lot of libertarians are torn on this topic some think that a baby and your and a, the woman's body is a property and a woman should have the right to do with her body whatever she wants because that is that's upholding the property rights. Other libertarians believe that we believe in the non-aggression principle. So to kill a child within the womb is aggression against a peaceful person. And we consider that a person, the baby, a person. So there's two schools of thought there. Obviously, I'm in the second school of thought. I also happen to be a Christian. So I believe that life begins at conception. And I think that with life, there's always hope. I believe that God gives us children as a blessing. I think that sometimes some, something awful like rape happens, but you have this baby and it doesn't necessarily have to be considered a punishment to you. It can be your blessing. It can be your new start if you choose to look at it that way. But here's what I think. And I think that a lot of anti, like the pro-choice movement and the pro-life movement, they feel like they have to be diametrically opposed to each other. And I don't think that has to be the case. I am obviously a pro-life. I believe in life. And I think that we um, should do our best to, uh, to make it to where everybody has the right to life. From a Christian point of view, though, I feel like as Christians, we have a duty to not only take care of the mother and, and, and try to make sure that she keeps her child and stays healthy and all that stuff. But I think that we should also do a lot more after the child is born. And I know that there are some churches that do this. My church is involved in a lot of ministries for young mothers who come. We have a clinic that some of the my church members are, bo- are on the board of and they do a lot of education to young moms about pregnancy they do a lot of education on birth control um, they really try to teach abstinence as much as possible but they do talk about parenting we have we used to have a therapist that would come in and do parenting classes after the child was born I just kind of wish we did a little bit more, but I think we're trying to get there. And I feel like this is the responsibility of the church. And I think of people, if you're not in a church, but you are pro-life, it is, I think it is important that we all kind of get involved in some kind of clinic like this, where we do, 
we deal with these types of young women who are making a humongous decision on whether to keep their baby. If we really want them to not abort, then we need to provide all the support we possibly can. That means that if they don't want to keep their baby, we need to try and hook them up with abortion, I'm sorry, not with abortions, with adoptions. Try to find couples that want to adopt that will take care of the baby or with adoption agencies that can help them connect with good families. Um, If they want to keep their child, then we need to stay connected with these young women and we need to teach them how to be good parents, you know, teach them how to teach them all the basic things that you don't even think about. Because especially when you're young, you're going through your milestones and but then you're not thinking about the milestones of your baby necessarily. So maybe we can teach them about what the milestones of a, of a developing child is going to be, what you're going to see as they grow older, what their nutrition needs are going to be, the medical needs, um, that kind of stuff. But most importantly, I think if you're pro-life, especially if you're a Christian, don't come at people with hate and don't come at them accusatory and calling um, pro-choice people murderers and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah you might think that abortion is murder because it is killing people, but you're not winning people to your side by being hateful. And that's one of the big things that I think that God has told us, especially Jesus, when he in the New Testament talks a lot about telling the truth to people in love. So, and if you're not a Christian, that's fine. But you would agree that if you want to get people on your side, you have to be loving and you have to be nice to people. Like you you need to be nice. You attract more flies with sugar or honey than vinegar. So that's just food for thought on that. And I'll just leave it at that because, I mean, I could go on and on and on forever about abortion, I'm sure. Just like our topic on free speech, there's probably a thousand things. Some of the other questions, I guess I'll look at a couple here. Dave asks, what have your experiences been being a female, not only in a male-dominated political group, also known as Sausage Party. Um, Has it affected how other people, mainly females, treat you because you don't exactly toe the line? I would say my experience being the only female, uh, I'm used to that. I've always been a tomboy. A lot of my bestest friends were boys growing up, so I'm kind of used to it. I was a daddy's girl when I was little, so that doesn't bother me. I probably think more like a guy than a girl anyways when it comes to a lot of things how's it affected my how females oh okay I work in a female dominated field so I have found a lot of times that my approach to talking to other people I'm very direct and when I am talking to patients for example I I kind of come at people in a very like educational type of way well I think people view women differently and they think that we're supposed to be soft and we're supposed to come into the room quietly and we need to approach every subject soft, softly. We don't, we can't be too direct, but I can't do that all the time. So I've gotten better about it over time, but I'm more of like, well, why didn't this happen? Or uh, this is, this is why it's not working instead of saying it nicely. So I preach to myself a little bit about saying things kindly because I can be, I don't mean to be mean sometimes. I'm just very direct and that doesn't get taken well, especially by other females. 
females in general, I have found that if you have to tell them that they're doing something wrong, you have to like say 75 sentences before you actually get to the sentence where you tell them that they're doing something wrong. I could be wrong about this, but that's my opinion just coming as a female because when I've had to, in my job, explain to somebody they're doing something wrong or that a patient's family complained about something to another nurse or to a CNA or something like that, I have found that I have to say, well, you're a very good CNA. You always do a great job. I have to really code it before I can get to the meat of what I want to say. So that's been something I've had to learn. And maybe other men kind of know what I'm talking about. But that's my issue. But I get called, I've been called all kinds of things growing up in high school. And in all the jobs I've had, I've had many females tell me that they didn't know if they were going to like me at first. And then now they know, they know me, they realize that, you know, what, what I say, you know, basically, they're going to, I don't sugarcoat a lot of stuff. I say directly the thing that I'm thinking. And that's, my husband hates that too, actually. Because I will literally just, I don't even filter it. It just comes straight at my mouth, everything I'm thinking sometimes. So it's a blessing and a curse, I guess. But at least if you're a good friend of mine, you know that I'm going to always tell you the truth. I'll try to say it nicely, but I can't promise anything. Let's see. Can you, Matthew says, can you name specific examples of how the new feminism is actually undermining equality for women? I would say that this, how women are dealing with this abortion, all these abortion bannings, for sure. The feminists are just, first off, they're lying about a lot of stuff, or maybe they don't realize they're lying, but they definitely are um, overreacting. And that doesn't help your cause. Because if anything you say turns out to not be true at all, then the assumption will be made that everything you're saying is not true. And that's been my experience. So if I've, and if I've ever dealt with somebody who I felt like they weren't, you know, honest with me about one particular thing, I don't take anything else they say seriously after that. And I know I'm not the only one that does that. So that's the feminist problem is they undermine their own veracity a lot of times because they overblow and it's not because they're purposely lying I don't think I think it's because they are over emotionally reacting to something one I'll do one last question Mm, oh god (laughs) Uh, Phil Padilla you're insane Phil and you guys might recognize that name because he also hosts co-hosts another show make liberty great again on our same network he asks who is better looking and more muscular me or cam and i'm just gonna say that i think both of both you and cam are cisgendered males both one is white one looks white so i will just say that your opinion doesn't matter and if is when it comes to hotness, my husband is probably hotter than both of you. Just saying. All right. So that was it. And I definitely almost went an hour there. So you can always, if you need to, and especially with some of the things I've said today, if you have any questions or you want to correct me on anything, you can always email me or email me and Maddie at voluntaryvixens at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter at 
Vixens Voluntary. We're also on Facebook at Voluntary Vixens. And we are also on Instagram at Voluntary Vixens Podcast. And that's it. So uh, I'm going to just say what Maddie always says. Keep it peaceful. Keep it sane. And most of all, keep it voluntary. Good night.